0: I'm very happy to introduce Mr. Jeff Salingo. Jeff Selingo is Vice President and Editorial Director of the Chronicle of Higher Education. He writes a regular blog and column for the Chronicle and the Huffington Post called Next on Innovation in Higher Ed. He has worked in the Chronicle for 14 years and has also written for the New York Times and the Washington Post. He's received awards from the Education Writers Association, the Society for Professional Journalists, and the Associated Press, and was a finalist for the Livingston Award for Young Journalists. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Jeff Salingo.
1: In recent weeks, we've been hearing and reading about the imminent decline of an American icon, the Kodak Company. You know, For decades, Kodak was the dominant employer in, upstate, in the upstate New York City of Rochester, where the company's founder, George Eastman, gave $25 million on his deathbed in 1932 to the city's premier higher education institution, the University of Rochester. It would be some 70 years later that the university he helped endowed surpassed the company he helped found as Rochester's largest employer. In cities across the country, that's now the fact. Universities, which once played a supporting role to industry in the United States, are now the primary employers in many cities, regions, and states. As a result, they are being asked to take a leading role as economies transform themselves for a global future. Now, more than ever, higher education is seen as a key to helping cities. The knowledge infrastructure provided by higher education institutions and in particular research universities, is as important, if not more so, than the tax breaks and real estate deals conventionally used to attract and retain corporate headquarters and new factories. The statistics show how much a university can do for a city are very striking. In highly skilled regions, where more than 25% of adults had college degrees in 1980, the population increased by 45% by 2010. Metropolitan areas in which less than 10% Of adults had a degree grew on average by just 13 percent. As a result, college leaders like the ones we have here today are seeking closer partnerships with civic and business leaders to harness the university's strengths. But the role of the university as the automobile factory of the modern economy is not embraced by all on campus or in City Hall. Town gown tensions persist over issues like real estate development, off the property tax rolls, On campus, leaders are concerned that new economic development imperatives could distract from their institution's core missions and worry that civic leaders may harbor unrealistic expectations of a college's ability to create jobs and revitalize local economies. We're here tonight to discuss those issues with four of the nation's leading university presidents. Furthest on my left is Max Nikias, He became president of the University of Southern California in 2010. He has been at USC since 1991 as a professor, director of national research centers, dean, provost, and now president. He holds faculty appointments in both electrical engineering and the classics. Dr. Nikias is recognized internationally for his pioneering research on digital signal processing, digital media systems, and biomedicine. Michael Crow became president of the Arizona State University in 2002. Previously, Dr. Crow was executive vice provost of Columbia University, where he was also professor of science and technology policy in the School of International and Public Affairs. He is the founder of the Center for Science, Policy, and Outcomes, dedicated to linking science and technology to optimal social, economic, and environmental outcomes. David LeBron is has been president of rice university in houston since 2004 prior to taking the helm at rice lebron was also dean was dean of the columbia law school also uh uh, from new york in 2010 uh lebron and his wife were selected by the greater houston partnership as the city's international executives of the year for helping make houston a center of international business and finally, on my left, from the other major uh, L.A. Uh, university, uh, UCLA uh, Chancellor Gene Block holds faculty appointments in the David Geffen School of Medicine and in the College of Letters and Science. I don't know when you have time to, become pres- to be president. Uh, a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, he specializes in biology, and Dr. Block became chancellor of UCLA in 2007, and previously he served as vice president and provost of the University of Virginia. Please, once again, welcome our distinguished guests tonight. So I'm going to start uh, with a question for all of you. Um, I think the title of this discussion is provocative, Can Universities Save Cities? And that's a pretty big expectation mm-hmm. For universities to fulfill, cities, you know, having watched as industries and companies have left and others have downsized, do they have unrealistic expectations of their universities, which are all, after all, uh, nonprofits? In other words, what's realistic and what's really not realistic when it comes to how universities work with cities? Um, and Gene, we'll start with you. So, you know, I would say that uh, we, we
2: can't. and really, really can't believe that universities can save cities. Universities, obviously, can help save cities. Uh, they can have profound impact, and uh, I'd say the largest impact they have is every year graduation graduations, the largest technology transfer event that occurs in the city when really well-trained students go out uh, into the workforce and can really add, add, add wealth to the city. Technology transfer from universities, healthcare, enormous effect on, on health care of, of cities. So I'd say, you know, realistically, universities play a key role. Uh, I think they have to be part of the solution, but uh, there's so much that universities can't do because of course they have a core mission of education which takes an awful lot of their faculty effort, research and, and teaching, so I would say participate. David.
0: What's realistic, what's not realistic? Well, I don't really see it so much as a question of whether universities can save cities. Cities generically aren't really in any danger. You know, it was in 2008 that for the first time more than half the world's population lived in cities In the United States, 82% of the population lives in cities, so that 82% is not really going anywhere. The real question, I think, is can universities make their cities more competitive, and particularly make them more competitive on the global scale? The world has changed. It's no longer the nation state, which is the only actor in the global arena. It's multinational corporations, non-government organizations, and I think, importantly, cities and universities. And if we look to the future, I think cities are going to play a very major role, universities are going to play a very major role in determining whether the cities in which they are located are going to be globally competitive cities. So I really see that as the answer. And, And that's both in terms of what they can contribute to the economic advancement of the city, but also importantly, what the universities contribute to the quality of life in the city, the quality of governance in the city, the amenities of the city. And so I think we're gonna see an increasingly close relationship there.
3: Michael. I feel sorry for you, Max, that by the time it gets to you. <laughs> <laughs> you, make so, de- you make it easier for me. Yeah, there's, 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 there's I think Virginia Tech and, and a few other schools have been working on this concept of America's megapolitan areas, these super-metropolitan. They're above the size of, of let's say, uh, metropolitan Los Angeles itself regions of the country where about 80% of the next 100 million people that uh, uh, develop in the United States will live. Those 10 places, if you look at them, those megapolitans, Houston is one, uh, Phoenix and Tucson is one, Southern California is one. There's a few others around the country. If you look at those and then think about the competitive units around the world, uh, uh, Shanghai, Singapore, whatever they happen to be, and start thinking about how competition (laughs) is going to occur, it's going to occur much more on the basis of these regions than it is going to occur on the basis of something we call a state or even something that we call a nation. Uh, And it's going to be within nations and within states that these megapolitans emerge. And the role of the universities in each of them, I think, is not to save the cities because uh, they are what they are. It's whether or not they'll be successful or not. It's whether or not in the United States the universities can be facilitative of our megapolitans being competitive and at the same time uh, uh, have some concept of economic justice in the way that they evolve. We can be wildly successful with a small percentage of our population, as we have seen, with a lot of, a lot of uh, social and economic stress as a function of being successful technologically. How can universities, if one really wants to sort of look at this in detail, be a part at every level of producing new ideas on the social front, the cultural front, the philosophical front, the practical front, the technological front, all fronts, producing enough ideas to help these major places in the United States, these megapolitans, actually be uh, places in which social mobility is still possible and economic competitiveness on a global scale is still attainable. How we do that is really going to be dependent upon not just the universities, but certainly the universities as a major actor in terms of producing these ideas and producing these people to help us to move in, that, in this direction. I guess if we, if we want to look at sort of where we are, it's not save. We don't have to save ourselves from anything other than ourselves. If we don't like the way things are now, it's because we haven't yet produced enough of the good ideas to be able to create a better and more successful and more economically just place called a city, or in this case, the big cities, the megapolitans.
4: Max? Well, I found it interesting you mentioned Kodak. It was founded as a corporation in 1880, the same year that USC was founded, right here in Los Angeles. But uh, when we refer to the city or save the city, it means that, oh, the city's in danger. Can we save it? But uh, if I were to change a little bit the question, have the universities really made a difference in the growth of a city, I think Everybody has to look at this area Los Angeles for the past 100 years plus you have three research powerhouses which is USC UCLA and Caltech with JPL and they have contributed enormously to the growth of this area in the past 100 years Los Angeles wouldn't be the same today without these three universities uh, contributing so much in the past 100 years where they have educated the talent, the doctors, the engineers, the, uh, uh, the cinematographers, uh, uh, the journalists. As the city was growing from a dusty village in 1880 to one of the mega regions that Michael is referring to, that has become today, these three universities have educated the manpower and the womanpower that the city needed to grow, but also That was the natural impact that the universities had. There was also the intentional impact that we were very proactive to reach out to the neighborhoods and build programs. We didn't have to do it, but we did it because it was was gonna benefit the city and therefore all of us uh, at the end.
1: Max, I'm going to stay with you for, for a moment because we were talking before we started about uh, some of the development you guys are doing right. uh, at USC. You know, some of the university-led uh, <coughs> projects that I think get often the most publicity are redevelopment efforts sure. around cramp- campuses, you know, bringing in retail, housing, coffee shops, movie theaters, and the like. And I think while such projects improve what I would call the curb appeal of universities for prospective students and faculty members and give the university a lot of exposure in the community, the type of jobs they create, at least for the long term probably, right. are, are more low wage and, and not career making. You know, when we talk about colleges driving economic development, is that what we're talking about, or are we talking about reshaping the local economy, which is longer term and, and much more sure. difficult? That's, uh, that's part of it in economic development.
4: Uh, you refer to our university village uh, a uh, construction project uh, that we're in the process of getting entitlements. This is going to be the largest uh, development project in the history of South Los Angeles. When we do it in the next uh, five to six years, it's going to generate 12,000 new uh, jobs. 4,000 will be construction jobs and 8,000 permanent jobs. So, and we're talking about a sector of the economy now where the unemployment is 40%. Mm-hmm. It's not 12 or 10%. So that's one. But the other one is out of the research. We, are, we represent here research universities. So there's so much research innovation that uh, generates new businesses as startups. And uh, that innovation that we spin off out of the university campuses also makes a difference. And the majority of the jobs that are being created are high-tech jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I can just give you an example, uh, out of USC in the last decade, uh, we had 40 business startups that raised uh, more than $800 million venture capital money, and created
1: thousands of jobs. Michael, I want to take that question to you as well, because when you arrived in Phoenix 10 years ago, in Tempe 10 years ago, um, there was not much around, right, and you, you've spent a lot of the time over the last 10 years really not only redeveloping in Tempe, but in Phoenix and in other places in, in the area. Again, you know, a lot of this is about curb appeal, uh, improving the look and the, and the feel surrounding the university. How much more difficult though is it to transform an economy? And, and Phoenix was probably a place that, where the economy really did need to be transformed.
3: Well, interestingly, uh, Phoenix, by comparison to Los Angeles, is a new city and Los Angeles is an old city. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're only at about four million people in Maricopa County, L.A. County, Maricopa County, and Cook County, Illinois, are the three uh, most populated counties in the United States. And uh, and, uh, to put things into perspective, uh, these three universities that are represented here, other than us, by 1980 were already well-established, powerful research institutions. We were not, because we were evolving more slowly. So we have emerged from 1980 until now into a, a massive institution and a massive research enterprise. But because we evolved more, more lately, more later, and because we evolved in a different place, a different time, in a different setting, the same model doesn't work for us. So we've mm-hmm. taken a different model. The model is one of trying to build a massive university research platform and maintaining, in our case, admission standards that were the University of California's admission standards from 1950, uh, which are highly egalitarian and then require us to operate on a, on a differentiated basis. So the objective on our part in advancing the institution is to have an institution which is hugely accessible across all segments of society to a research grade and research level faculty. And the challenge for us in the last 10 years has been to design that model and make that model work even in the moment of the Great Recession, even in the moment of the stresses and strains around, around uh, higher education. And we have, for the most part, made huge progress and been able to do that. We have, we're increasing the number of graduates, graduates that we're producing per year by a thousand. Uh, we have increased, for instance, the number of Hispanic, uh, graduates of Hispanic uh, family origins by a factor of 10 uh, in this same time frame. And so it's, it's, that's not 10% more, 10 times more. Mm-hmm. And so for us, the model has been in our particular city, emerging in our particular time, in our particular place, and era is to build a different kind of of, it's sort of the same species but operating in a different setting, which is very large, highly distributed, highly engaged across a very cro- large cross section of, fa- of the economy, and then research intensive at the same time. That is the kind of economic driver, if you will, that, that an emerging city with the stresses and strains that Phoenix has uh, needs and has needed, and
1: that's the path that we took. So the University of Pennsylvania is, is often held up as a pioneer in, as a, a, of the university as a developer in the 1990s when Judy Rodin um, was president there. There was a story recently in the Wall Street Journal where the current president, Amy Gutman, said, if we don't take on the challenge of redeveloping our part of the city, no one will. Um, and, and Penn redevelopment now is really about West Philly. Um, and if you talk to people in other parts of the city, they feel somewhat left out, I think. now. Uh, David and Gene, you're both part of very large cities, right? Is, is part of your concern, is your, is your biggest concern for your surrounding neighborhoods, and how do you balance that against the needs of the larger city? I'll
0: start with David. So, so we're a very different kind of university, right. almost the opposite of what Michael describes, a well-recognized research university, small by comparison, in a major city. So <clears throat> we're a ca- kind of powerhouse university, but in a very large city. So employment is not what we contribute to the city. We only employ about 3,000 people in the city. But we, we contribute something different. We're also not located in a disadvantaged part of our city. In fact, if you went to Houston, you said, where would you really like to locate a university? That's right. You'd locate it right where we are. The <laughs> Texas Medical Center at one end of the campus, the museum district at the other end of the campus, the city's largest park across the street. So we have this wonderful location. And so what we do is really look beyond. Uh, there's not that. We, of course, have issues with our neighbors, and we have to be very concerned about our neighbors. But, for example, we're committed to contributing through Cape to K through 12 education in our city. And, and that's really not about our immediate neighborhood. A lot of it's about STEM education, for example, ways that we can educate more, for example, uh, leaders of schools in the city. It's one of the things we do we have a lot of faculty engaged in K, K- through 12 education mm-hmm. our school of architecture for example is very much involved in designing housing with low uh, environmental impact but affordable housing when there was a national contest held to design you know the zero house that didn't consume energy our students really chose to design the best house they could that was affordable to the poorest population not just a, the most technologically advanced Population. and this is a lot. I think of what people can do. I think we we tend to get focused on how how, can, how many startups we can do, which is a really good thing. We do we're really factories of innovation. I think what shouldn't be left out is one what we can contribute to existing and maturing industry. You know, a question I've been asking myself, I don't know the answer is, you know, would the future with the car industry have been different, for example? if University of Michigan, which is a fabulous university, had been located in Detroit instead instead of Ann Arbor. Arbor. And we see that dialogue with the energy industry in Houston, for example. The other thing, I think, which is sometimes forgotten, and again, reaches beyond our immediate neighborhood, is how do we improve the quality of governance in a city? And one of the things that universities are great at, uh, sometimes, I would say, a little bit to our regret, we are great at being critics, particularly of ourselves, but we make local government better. We, for example, in Houston, um, uh, some folks at Rice University professors run what's called the Houston Area Survey, which they've been doing for 30 years. So Houston is the only city in the country that has 30 years of longitudinal data about its population and what they're concerned about and what the issues are and how race relations are and how the population perceives the economy. This contributes to the quality of governance in the city, and I think that's also an aspect that shouldn't be left out.
1: Gene, how do you balance the needs of, of what's right around sure. you as opposed to the larger metropolitan right, area? So, you know, we, we live, obviously, in a very
2: affluent right. neighborhood, and that creates its own set of problems. It creates problems for faculty that can't live close to campus because they can't afford to live there. There's, it's, it's interesting. That the immediate neighborhood is not the problem. Our, our, but our view is, as we're UCLA, we're Los Angeles, uh, our responsibility is for the entire community. So, our focus has really been much of our focus has really been uh, at a distance, working throughout Los Angeles, especially in trying to level the playing field K through 12, assisting with, with uh, schools. We started a community school at the old Ambassador Hotel site. The concern is to make you know, UCLA accessible to a larger group of students, really through interventions in K through 12. That's been that's been a lot of our focus. Our health system uh, extends throughout the city. A lot of our efforts, a lot of our volunteer efforts with our, our health system and other efforts, actually are, are it, it, we do at a distance from from Westwood, mm-hmm. obviously. So you know our concerns go much much beyond Westwood. Uh, Westwood itself is. Uh, a little getting a little shaggy, and certainly we're, <laughs> we're thinking about ways to, uh, to improve Westwood, but overall the, the, the neighborhood
1: is in good shape. It's really the city that we have to focus on. And I want to return to education, K through 12 education in a moment, but um, so there's a research agenda obviously as part of, uh, of local outreach um, or regional outreach. Um, but much of it is applied um, research, uh, and, and we've run stories over the years where some faculty members on campus don't necessarily like a, a local research agenda. How do you get Michael, I'll address this question to you. How do you get faculty, how do you get faculty jazzed and excited about participating in, in, in local research uh, uh, projects?
3: Well, one of the way that we've approached it is to uh, try to build something other than a generic vision for the institution. We think that many public universities in the United States have, have generic visions. They're just there to serve a particular service within the communities, and those visions are the same everywhere. So we've worked very much on a unique vision, particularly this, this vision of inclusion and this, and this elements of our vision that are related to commitment to the community. We established a series of design aspirations for the institution to allow for and to stimulate our differentiation because the last thing that we want in a newer city building a newer university is just to say, oh, well, let's just look at what University X did in the past and just do that, because why would that work uh, in this time, this era, or that particular place? And so one of the design inspirations that we had is social embeddedness. One of the design inspirations that we have is this notion of of social transformation. And so there's not an expectation that, that all of our 3,000 faculty members will all of a sudden look at something like that and say, Oh, I'd like to do that. But that there is an opportunity for some faculty members on a self selected basis to aspire to those kinds of, of uh, areas of focus. And so, what we have done is uh, we don't ask any faculty member in particular to do anything uh, uh, other than to you know, perform well as faculty members in their teaching and their scholarship. But we have created an opportunity where it's an aspiration of the institution Mm -hmm. to be more socially embedded. And we have moved resources within the institution, both that we've acquired and redirected internally and resources that we've acquired externally, and focused it on these design aspirations for the institution. That has then permitted us to see a tremendous uh, uh, focus of our faculty energy on the problems that are unique to our particular location without any one faculty member saying to another faculty member, well, you shouldn't be doing that because you can't say that to each other anyway. So this just has broadened the, in a sense, the effective focus of the institution from a simple model to a more complex model, a more complex model that we have purposefully designed.
1: Now we know there's a perception of higher ed, whether accurate or not, that academics, you know, live in their ivory tower and come off campus to, to lecture the town people on how to do things, right? Well, we took when, off our robes
3: before we came in here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, let me ask you, Max, how do you balance the history and culture of a city with, with faculty members and other people on campus who say, well, this is the way we should do things?
4: Right, well, the, you know i've been there as you mentioned about my <laughs> my career path uh, being a director of a national center in uh, in the 1990s in digital media and, uh, and and this is what we have at USC and we had it back then that uh, in any interdisciplinary center or research activity we always we always look for also neighborhood outreach programs or programs that we can collaborate with the city or with various city entities. And uh, the environment at USC is very entrepreneurial. And actually, when it comes to these outreach programs, this is what we call social entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, there are research projects, uh, there are collaborative projects, applied research in particular, where faculty collaborate with, uh, or they do their studies in various neighborhoods, and there are collaborations with city institutions. Uh, You have to provide the right incentives in the space of the academy to get the faculty to do that. And usually, every year when it comes to the merit evaluation of the performance of a faculty member, the three most important components is their research activity, their teaching activity, and then their service. And this is where it comes. It isn't just service to the institution, but service to, part- by, uh, to participating to these neighborhood and city related programs. Mm-hmm. So we embedded these incentives in the annual merit evaluation of our faculty performance.
1: Um, a few of you mentioned schools, K through 12 schools. And obviously, one of the biggest issues facing urban areas are, are the public schools. Um, Gene, you mentioned uh, UCLA runs a a school, obviously, but that's one school within a a fairly large public school system. I mean, how much impact can a university have when it's running just one or two or yeah. a couple of well, schools?
2: And we, and I, should, I should clarify that. That's one school that we obviously are intensively running, but mm. we have hundreds of schools that we're in helping, assisting. Mm. We actually are deployed over, throughout Los Angeles. We can have, you know between us and our partners, and USC is also deeply involved in this, I think we can have significant impact. I think we have to think more boldly, though, and one thing that we've been talking about is whether there are interventions. For example, if students in the third and fourth grade don't understand, don't learn fractions properly, they don't do well in algebra. If they don't do well in algebra, they're not going to become engineers, they're not going to become physicians, they're not going to become scientists, and perhaps some discrete interventions where we could bring boot camp, bring large numbers of teachers to UCLA and other schools, and just, for example, teach them fractions so that the more comfortable with, with teaching fractions to their, their pupils would be, uh, would be very effective. So I think we have to think larger and what we can do in K through 12. But I think we're already having quite an impact.
1: That's mm-hmm. my sense. Uh, you all lead um, international uh, institutions with, uh, with international uh, reputations. Um, and uh, do you sometimes feel, and, and David, I'll ask you this question. I'll, I'll, I'll address this to you. Do you sometimes feel that, uh, that talk, again, talking about the K through 12 systems in, in our urban areas, do, do students in Houston feel, that, that rice is attainable to them? I mean, if, if you think about institutions serving their cities, one of the best ways they can serve their cities is to provide a higher education uh, to, uh, to its residents.
0: Um, do, do, people in, do
1: you believe that people in Houston feel that, that rice is attainable to them?
0: Yeah, I think increasingly so. Our student body has become increasingly diverse. And in our student body, for example, somewhat unusually, I think, for uh, an elite private research university, there is no majority in our student Body. It's mm-hmm. that, that level of diversity, and we have a very significant number of, from Houston. But it does really require reaching out into the community in various ways, and, and things that you might think are sort of frivolous and not important, like bringing students in for tours on the campus, turn out actually to be very, very important, sure. or having your professors go out into the classrooms, for example, and talk about what they're doing and. Astronomy, for for example, or you know, we're a real center of nanotechnology. Going out and explaining what nanotechnology is, exciting people about STEM fields in particular. So it takes a real effort. It takes a flexibility in how we think about admin, uh, admissions uh, and how we sort of can help on some, some occasions students catch up who have less privileges in their education than other students. But you know, for us as a small university, that's not going to be our major. Impact. Impact on, on K through 12 education, but it's really important we get the message. Uh, I'm involved with KIPP schools, which are uh, here in Los Angeles and Houston, and you go into a KIPP school, and you know everywhere you look, there. Are you know, banners of colleges. Every classroom is sort of affiliated with a college. It is really important to start sending that message at a very early age. And I think your question is exactly the right one. It is really important that the students in those schools where the least well-off populations are attending have a sense that the best universities are attainable to them.
1: um, You know, one of the reasons I think that there have been some tensions, town-gown tensions, um, between universities and their cities is over taxes, property taxes, uh, and you're all smiling. Um, Michael, you, uh, you know you know this going back even to your days at uh, at, at Columbia. Um, you know, as 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 you develop more and more of the places where you are located, um, you're in some cases taking obviously property off the the tax rolls. Um, in some cases, you're all making payments in in, in lieu of taxes, but. But that system is not sustainable for the long run. So, uh, so Michael, I'll, I'll address this to you because you know, we were talking a little bit about a, a, a property tax district in, in near ASU. I mean, what's the long-term solution to this? Is it, is it going to continue to just be a land grab where universities are continuing to take more land off the tax rolls, paying something towards taxes, and, and, but, but that can't be sustainable for cities. We know that.
3: Well, for us, and it might be unique to our situation, we've gone into an intensive Partnership, partnership mode with us. There's 18 municipalities in the county. Uh, we have major capital finance projects funded by the municipalities themselves in Phoenix, in Scottsdale, in Tempe, in Mesa. Uh, we're negotiating one in a city uh, called Chandler, which is a city of about 300,000 people where Intel is based and uh, a big fabrication plant there and Orbital Sciences and other companies. So we've gone down a different path. We've gone into the path of partnership building where we proffer to the municipality a specific uh, advancement of our relationship to a higher level of impact for their community. And then we uh, stand for public discourse relative to the city then engaging us and investing in the institution. The city of Phoenix has invested $233 million along with uh, others that we were able to bring in, private sector developers and others to Move moved three of our colleges to downtown Phoenix, our School of Journalism, our College of Public Programs, and our College of Nursing and Health Innovation in a city called Mesa, which most of you may not have heard of, which is larger than St. Louis, which is adjacent to Phoenix. Uh, the same thing. We have built an entire campus there for a new way to teach engineering, a second engineering school involving thousands of students. And we've done this not by becoming engaged in arguments, but by uh, sharing mutual objectives working together in a planning modality and then seeking investment from these municipalities. So maybe that's unique to us, but that's the pathway that we've taken.
1: Max, uh, any, well, anything on that front?
4: When we talk about that, uh, we, we should not lose sight of the fact that uh, as a university, we're in the business of educating people and also doing, the, uh, doing research. We're not a real estate company. Even if you acquire a piece of property and you like to build a building, or in this particular case, it's our university village, we do it because we would like to meet the needs of research and education, while at the same time, we're very sensitive also to the needs of the neighborhood. The Los Angeles Economic Development Corporation did a study where they showed that the impact that the University of Southern California has to the city of Los Angeles is $5 billion a year that every dollar that we spend at USC has also an impact of another 80 cents somewhere else in the city. Uh, And uh, we are not not an entity that is gonna leave the city ever. We're not gonna search for lower taxes somewhere else in another state. We're here to stay, we've been here for 130 years, and we're gonna be
1: here for another 1,000 years and beyond.
2: Right. Well,
1: you say you're not in the uh, real estate development business, but you are in so many, you know, you're in the entertainment business, right? You're in the sports business, you're in the museum business, you're in a lot of businesses, right? I mean, in some ways, you, you've come to that place with not much of a choice. I mean, uh, uh, that's
4: true. And, uh, and actually, you are for the sports business, the athletic spirit that USC and UCLA bring with the rivalry in the city of Los Angeles, <laughs> I think it's a good one for the city. And you
1: don't need an NFL <laughs> team. <laughs>
4: I have no comment on that.
1: <laughs> um, we have uh, two public uh, universities up here and two privates. Gene, because you're a public university, is there a different, do you feel more, I guess, pressure to, um, to respond to, to community and regional um, and state needs?
2: Absolutely. I mean, public universities have a different mission. I mean, we have certainly have all. Okay, them.
1: but okay, you, no. okay. So you do. We do. At the same time, as we all know, the state is giving you less and less money to, to, to yes. accomplish your. But your the basic mission's
2: mission. in the DNA of the institution and in the outlook. And you know, one, one thing that characterizes these big publics, for example, is extension programs. We have an enormous extension program throughout Los Angeles. I think we serve about sixty thousand adult learners a year. Those are the kinds of things that publics do for the communities uh, that really do differentiate us. And there is a sense of service, I think, at public universities, I'm very proud of, that uh, that make a difference, and you see this through
1: extension. I think that uh, you know all of you uh, lead I- uh, institutions that are incredibly successful in your cities. There's probably a lot of mayors out there who would love you to move uh, to their city. We just saw this in New York uh, City, where uh, where the mayor of New York held, a c- uh, where the city held a competition, uh, and a California university it was in there almost till the end. Um, would every, would any of you ever consider taking your model in a big way somewhere else to to help other cities who? Uh, who might be interested, uh, Max? You raising your hand.
4: I will never do that for USC, and mm-hmm. uh, this is where I drew. Then why the, not? I, I drew the line on the sand mm-hmm. uh, uh, for a very simple reason: that uh, Burger King, Starbucks, Pizza Hut s- taste the same. It doesn't matter where you are, whether you are in New York City or in Los Angeles or in Bali or in Shanghai. But to take the curriculum diversity and the university campus that we have, let's say at USC, there is no way I can replicate that experience anywhere else. It's not going to be the same. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I will refuse to dilute the value and the quality of the USC degree by setting up a campus somewhere else. Michael.
3: We're not going to set up campuses. We run a business school in Shanghai for the Ministry of Finance for the central government of the People's Republic. That's, a, that's an offshoot of our W.P. Carey School of Business. We, we uh, have uh, some programs and projects that we operate in other places, but I agree very much with Max. In fact, our number one uh, uh, design aspiration is to leverage the place that we're located, meaning one of the things I think that has happened with, with some universities is that they've become disassociated with the communities in which they are embedded and the people that they serve. And that disassociation always in the hunt for resources or the hunt for greener fields, not to take anything away from anyone else, I think weakens the possibility of the emergence of the university as a powerful force for the success of cities and a powerful source for the success of our country. And so I think location is really, really important because the last thing that we want is all the universities being essentially the same. We want them to be highly differentiated. Yes, they share core values and core processes and so forth, but they need to be different and engaged in our different communities.
1: But is that easy for all of you to say because you're in some of the most dynamic cities right now in, in, in the country?
0: Yeah, I mean, you have a very <laughs> <Right>? unusual, <laughs> right? I mean, unrepresentative. These are three right. of the fastest growing cities right. in, the, in the United States. I, I'd like to say one thing. I, actually as a private university president, I don't think our mission of service is actually very different than a public university mm-hmm. these days. And we are, I think as suggested, very anchored in our communities. We have these permanent commitments, billions of dollars of resources. And I think one of the things, in terms of the tax question that you asked, it's, it's tempting to go after universities, because unlike sports teams and unlike industry, we can't threaten to move, and we won't threaten to move. And so I very much agree. I think Our experience, has suggested, is anchored in those communities. The one thing I would say is, I think one should step back and look at the landscape of higher education. There are 4,000 institutions of higher education in the United States. Of that number, there are about 400 that one might call research universities in in some way. And then there's a sort of more elite group, say, of about 200, perhaps, of, of really powerful research universities. If you look at this industry, and compare it to any others, we're the most fractured, competitive industry that there is. And we often don't get credit for the fact that we're so intensely competitive. But there's also an element that is irrational in the way that we're organized. And so, although I agree with my colleagues that we're not inclined to go establish branches, I do think one of the things that you're going to see really happen over the next decades is an acceleration of the level of collaboration between universities. Mm -hmm. More partnerships, more joint sort of ventures, more joint research laboratories spanning both the nation and the globe. So I think we have to find ways that rationalize education, that recognize the mobility of our students, that recognize the need to bring multiple experiences our students across nations. So I don't think you're gonna see as much of the multiple campuses as you're gonna see more and more intense collaborative relationships between universities. So not only are you four uh, in dynamic cities, but you're also leading fairly
1: um, well-to-do universities. I know you all want to be more well-to-do. <laughs> uh, but, but you all have a fairly large endowments. Uh, always, of course, you want larger ones. Uh, is it possible for smaller universities, who operate more on the margins, um, to be able to do the stuff that you're doing? Or, are, or are there, is there only a certain class of universities that's really able to engage? Uh, with our community. Gene, I'll, I'll, I'll address that to you first.
2: The research piece is demanding for small universities or resor- uh, res- resource limited universities or institutions because it's expensive. The infrastructure for scientific and engineering research is extremely expensive. So I say there is, there is a scale issue there, it, it, there is a challenge. So, to the extent that uh, technology that's developed at universities then can spin off and benefit communities, I think that is something largely that's done, I think, by, by fairly substantial. Institutions, because the cost of science now is so high. Mm-hmm. Anybody else on
3: that question? Michael? The, the only thing that, that I, I would add is that uh, you know every college and every university, to be true to its design from way back, you know the Greek academies and so forth, all the way back to the beginning genetic material in which we're framed, must be a home for teacher scholars, all of them. And if you if you end up at a place that somehow isn't teacher-scholars, then you're at something else. I don't know what to call it, but it's not really quite a college or a university. It's something else. It's, and so it's just the intensity of that. And I think that, that the, the, the smaller public uh, uh, colleges and universities that are out there and the smaller private colleges and universities each have a responsibility first to their students and then second to engage their community with the ideas that they are working on and producing. And I think many, if not most, uh, do that.
0: Uh, I want to be very careful what we aspire to. So I think the easy answer to your question is, no, they can't. And the second is, no, we wouldn't want Mm -hmm. them to. This landscape of 4,000 institutions of higher education, one of the most important pieces of that landscape are the community colleges. They provide incredible opportunity to students, very low cost. And if you look back at the careers of my predecessor as president of Rice University, began his education in a community college. And so we have liberal arts colleges, we have different kinds of public universities and private universities. They all perform a different role. And if we ended up with all universe, colleges and universities wanting to be research universities, we wouldn't be actually providing the, the, the breadth of opportunity related to cost, numbers of slots. We know we need to increase the availability of higher education in this country. The way to do that isn't necessarily to build more research mm-hmm. universities.
1: When, oh, go ahead,
2: you know, you know, I would add the California master plan, in, in that sense, was brilliant. The idea of partitioning responsibility to community colleges, to state colleges, and to un, research universities with really different roles, actually, in California, I thought was well thought out. And community colleges represent really a major feeder, for, like, for example, the, both the state system
1: and the university system uh, to provide students. So it's actually a well-articulated system. When I talk to economic development folks um, in various cities, you know, one of the things that some uh, places are struggling with is trying to keep more graduates, more of their universities' graduates locally. Um, some universities and some cities are very successful at that; others, not so much. Um, Michael, you've had tremendous growth at Arizona, so I'll start with you. Um, what do you think that's important? First of all, do you think that's even an important goal? No. um okay <laughs>
3: I mean, that, 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 that's too that, that's, that's too parochial simplistic okay. too too parochial. What the universities need to do is produce fantastic uh, graduates in all of our cases, many if not most of them stay in the region i don 't know about uh, rice per se, but I know in the other cases it 's true that is they stay in, you have many international students but but to, to think that somehow you need to keep
4: graduates in a particular place, I, I just don't think well, that's realistic. I, was, I smiling. was smiling looking at Jim, because Jim and I don't have this problem, the weather in California keeps <laughs> our <laughs> graduates. And that's, why, and, and that's why <laughs> corporate recruiters uh, uh, from other parts of the country, they don't like our universities, because they have very little chances recruiting our graduates. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to leave the state of California. <laughs>
1: I'm
3: not
4: kidding, this is true. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> 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 Max is telling the truth. <laughs> is it a good idea for an economic development
3: officer to, or a governor to think that somehow the university should keep its graduates in the state yeah. and make that a part of its function? The answer is no. What they should yeah. be doing is creating an environment that is conducive to
0: all kinds
1: right. of exciting things happening. That's, that's right. right. Mm-hmm. But
0: the, da- David, do you have any thought on that? Um, well, for the record, I want to state uh, that uh, despite the reputation in Southern California, Houston also has great weather that keeps our <laughs> students. Uh, including in July? Uh, <laughs> uh, including in July. Uh, I, I, would, I would actually look at the flip side of this, right? which is the role of each of our universities in attracting folks not from the city and and necessarily the region to come to the region. And that's really one of the roles that our universities play. They bring people from all over. And we shouldn't be worried that some of our students may want to go elsewhere. I think it's it's, it's part of what a city does. You look at a city like Houston, it's a city of immigrants. Some of the people say all, y'all, and all yeah. y'all, and things like that, but most of them <laughs> don't. And, and that's part that's of what makes a global city great these days. And, and it's one of the essential roles of a university is, is fostering that diversity, both a domestic diversity and an international diversity, and that really contributes to the global competitiveness of our, our cities.
1: Uh, we're going to be going to the audience for uh, questions in, in a few minutes, but. But I wanted to go back to the faculty uh, for uh, for one moment. Um, you know, presidents come and go. We all know. Uh, sometimes by choice. Um, uh, community leaders, mayors, governors come and go. Um, so if 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 all the development efforts, of all the economic development efforts, are led by those two sides, you sometimes have an ebb and flow to this stuff. So how important? is getting the faculty really involved in these efforts in order to sustain it for, for the long run. I'll, I'll kind of toss that out there for anybody to take
0: it.
3: Okay. All I'll say is that it's important in our case to create an environment where a faculty member is not uh, robotically prescribed to perform in only a single way. And that is they have the freedom to engage in a broad set of questions, a broad set of problems. Uh, and uh, one wants to make uh, encouragement, and we have done this, we want to make what we call use-inspired scholarship as valuable to our faculty as an aspirational goal, as curiosity-driven scholarship, and that's what we're attempting to encode in the institution, which is a broadening, as I mentioned earlier, of our, of, in a sense of our genetic design. And so we think that things will happen as a function of broadening that design for the institution itself.
4: Okay. Sorry, yeah, let's quickly uh, and then think, we'll go to the audience. I think once uh, the key here is to, uh, it has to become part of the ethos and the culture of the university. And, and there has once, to be rewards. For and, it, and, right. and it have to be right. rewards. And once you reach that point, it doesn't really matter, presidents come and go, as you pointed out, administrators come and go, elected officials come and go. However, if you create that culture and that uh, becomes part of the ethos of the, of the university, then the faculty will carry it on, and uh, the future administrators will continue the path that was already shown by the previous uh, leaders.
0: As uh, tuition prices have gone up all over the country at universities, and students are beginning to question a lot about being in debt, could you talk a little bit about what could be a climate of change as to whether or not the next generation questions whether they should be spending that kind of money if it does not attach itself to a job?
4: It is true that uh, uh, tuition has been going up, but uh, we shouldn't be looking just on the tuition alone. We should also be looking at what is the size of the financial aid that uh, each university offers to their students. So uh, I can speak about USC, that uh, the financial aid pool that we have today is $230 million per year. This is money the university puts on the table and offers financial aid to our students. It is the largest. Uh, of a private university in the country. So more than 60% of our students at USC receive financial aid today. And uh, if you are a full tuition-paying student at the university, you still receive a subsidy of 11% uh, today Uh, because of the many donations, uh, then the fundraising, that you build the buildings, or uh, the uh, contribution from the endowment, uh, and so on. Uh, it, it, this is an area that we're all concerned. And uh, uh, the way we work about it is that if there is a student who would like to come to USC, and we believe that this student, we want that student to come, then we sit down with the family, and we work out a plan to make it possible for the student. Uh
1: Gene and Michael, quickly, yeah. and then
2: so we, we also, at UCLA, have a substantial financial aid program, and I think, in fact, the entire UC system, students whose families earn less than $80,000, essentially, tuition is covered. But the question is whether, you, whether it's valuable to receive a four-year education these days. I, I think the numbers something like a million dollars difference over a lifetime of earning between a college graduate and a non-college graduate. It's hard to explain that to the 10% unemployed right now. And that that said, we have to be sensitive to the fact that we've got to prepare our students for job market, and uh, we have to begin thinking about creative ways of melding a liberal arts education with either certificate or professional training so that students do have skills, job skills, but still have the advantage of a liberal arts education, which is going to serve them their whole life. Let me just add
3: that uh, our tuition has increased in the 10 years that I've been in office uh, basically four times, 4x. Uh, And at the same time, we doubled the number of Pell Grant eligible students attending the university from 11,000 to 23,000 of our undergraduates. That's from families under $45,000 a year of income. So at scale, at very large scale, we have uh, implemented an absolute unequivocal commitment that there'll be no financial barrier to entry or completion of our institution that has required us to re-engineer the very structure of the institution, the finances of the institution, the way that we operate to be able to fulfill that commitment. And we operate at, at, at a very large scale, 10,000 freshmen per year, new freshmen coming in, 8,000 transfer students coming in from community colleges with that same financial aid commitment. And so uh, in, ter- in terms of the second part of the question, this notion of, of uh, indebtedness, we've decided as a society to stop significant public investment at the end of high school. That's a decision that we've made. That decision doesn't have anything to do with the actual need for much of our population to continue its education. It's unfortunate that we live in that kind of an environment, but I think all the institutions here are committed to access and to making things work. Uh, And it's unfortunate, I think at one point we'll reconsider that at some point, where we put that public investment and how we put it, but uh, I think the institutions have to be committed themselves. I want to talk a little bit more about the KIPP schools. I think we kind of, like, kind of like drove past that. What are the ratio of the KIPP schools of young students who actually get to
0: go to
4: these actual colleges?
0: KIPP students go actually to pretty full range. Uh, we typically have a KIPP Kip student or two. We're a very small school, so in terms of percentage, um, Kip stu- you'll find KIPP students at almost all the top universities in the, in the country. So they have a very successful program of getting their students to college and now increasingly through college. And I think one of the interesting things about KIPP is this focus on the through college. And I think one of the things we have to realize is it's great that we can now create the opportunities for these students, but sometimes they need a little higher level of support to succeed in college. Sometimes they need more time, for example, to catch up with some of their peers who have more privileged education. So they're, they're represented, I think, probably at all of, our, yeah. all of our colleges, and pretty much a full yeah. range of, of colleges. So, so it's pretty successful in that vein. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the recent uh, alleged hacking of the drone
3: in Iran you know, how plausible is that considering that within the international community we uh, rank very low in uh, uh, math and science achievements and with all the budget cuts, why isn't that uh, helping people make the correlation between education and national security a little bit more, uh, you know, seriously? Well, Max, you're the engineer. <laughs> <laughs> Max,
4: Max, did it just run out of fuel? What do
2: you think?
4: <laughs> Well, clearly, uh, Uh, The sciences and engineering uh, majors and uh, uh, attracting students in these disciplines uh, has always been uh, a challenge and a concern. And uh, uh, many of you, I'm sure, know I was one of the beneficiaries that uh, the gap is filled by foreign students, uh, international students uh, who come here, receive an American university education. And then, of course, they pursue their careers. They become citizens. And uh, uh, I used to remember being dean of engineering, the numbers that uh, the United States graduates about 100, and uh, at least I was true five, uh, six, seven years ago, 140,000 engineers uh, per year. And about uh, 80,000 were uh, American students, uh, domestic, and the rest uh, were international students. So that's how, as a nation, we, we have met uh, the needs in the sciences and engineering uh, expertise. And that continues to be the case uh, today. And, uh, and I believe will continue to be the case, uh, at least in the foreseeable future. And it has worked very well. Because uh, the, we talk about research universities. If you, if you look at whether it's the top 50 or the top 100 research universities in the United States, they are the magnet of the best and the brightest from all over the world who would like to come here. And of course, all over the country who would like to come and be, receive that American research university education. And therefore, as a nation, we have to feel fortunate that uh, there is such a desire from around the globe for the best and the brightest who would like to come here. This question is with regard to K, to, uh, K through 12 and it's to you all. With um, As our demographics changes, there are more and more active senior citizens. Have you right. folks tried to tap into those resources to help out with K through 12, volunteer work and stuff like that? Uh, we uh,
3: certify coming out of ASU just under 2,000 teachers a year. Uh, we've gone back in the last couple of years and dismantled our College of Education and rebuilt it as a as a new entity in cooperation with Teach for America, built around uh, teacher education only, and we, we're reaching out to change how we attract who's coming into being a teacher, both young and older uh, individuals, uh, how they're selected, how they're educated, how each of them and all of them, we're not there yet, need to be math and science capable upon graduation, when only a small percentage of them uh, have that kind of capacity right now, and that means including engaging uh, the fact that people are living longer and uh, want second careers or third careers. So we're working on a complete reconceptualization of teacher acquisition, teacher training, and teacher engagement. uh, Because the model that we've had in the past as one of the leading centers for the production of teachers has not been as successful as it will need to be in the future.
2: Yeah, and we operate a career switching program, actually, through our extension program. So there are a lot of folks, you know, retired military and people with good quantitative skills who can really add to the K-12 uh, workforce, just need teaching certificates and, and appropriate training. Bill Kendall, I'm actually a, a graduate of Rice
1: and of USC. <laughs> now you need the other two. <laughs> but
2: I've noticed that if there are
0: left free of outside pressures, most universities tend to become somewhat insular and to contract into the ivory tower, and I'm sure that a major portion of all of your gentlemen's jobs is to buck that trend. (laughs) And my question is, how difficult is it to buck that trend, and what do you have to do to get your people out into the community when it's much more comfortable to stay close? Living in Los
2: Angeles, and our faculty, of course, live in Los Angeles, and it provides, the, in some sense, some of the most complex problems, social problems, economic problems, you know, transportation problems, that this is really a laboratory for some of the very best research right. that can go on. Right. So I think, uh, I'm sure this is true of USC and Caltech as well, many of our faculty are actually focused on issues that affect Los Angeles, because right. this is the place. This is ground zero for a lot of these problems. So I think it's not hard to, uh, to keep people uh, you know, out of getting, becoming too insular, because this particular community offers so many challenges that are interesting research material. So. You all have dynamic visual arts and performing arts programs. What do you see the role in universities and their role in cities uh, through those programs uh, engaging in in, in the growth of the city? Not in terms of the research, where research does occur in those programs, um, but in terms of conceptual thinking and the way city growth occurs.
0: I've been struck by some of our graduates in fields like finance and medicine who have said to me, whether it's the arts or the humanities, that they would not have been able to do what they do without that kind of education that they had. And it sort of really stokes their imagination and gives them a different way of looking and conceptualizing a problem. For us, for example, we have a very kind of symbiotic relationship with the the city. We have a spectacular music school. And the relationship, for example, between the music school and the Houston Grand Opera and the music school and the Houston Symphony, those two things really sustain each other. It's something that we contribute to the city by making those institutions more successful, and then it's something actually the city that contributes back to us. If you look at the Houston Symphony, I forget exactly the number, but it's some unbelievable percentage of the, of the uh, orchestra that actually has some Rice affiliation. Mm-hmm. And this is for a small university. They either graduated from Rice or faculty members at Rice, and so I think universities really play a central role, not the same role, but a central role in sustaining art and culture. And it's one of the things that makes our cities attractive to people, it wants them, people to, uh, encourage those, them to move there. And, and so I think that relationship with museums, as I said before, we're particularly fortunate. We're across the street from the museum district of Houston where all the art museums are really concentrated. And it's only, for example, through collaboration with those museums that we were able to start an art history, prog- uh, art history PhD program. So I think it's an essential relationship. Max, you wanted to add well,
4: to I, I, here Here is USC as a research university, and we have the collective strengths that we have in the arts with five art schools, with cinematic arts, music, and theater, and fine arts, and architecture. There are more than 4,000 full-time students on the USC campus today who major in the arts. And then on top of that for the rest of the students they have the opportunity not only to take courses in the arts from these schools but also to take a, a minor major in a minor or a double major in the arts and needless to say that the five art schools at USC they have very strong partnerships with all the museum and arts institutions in the city of Los Angeles and that partnership has been there for for more than a century isn't your most popular minor film not, uh, no, uh, after the business minor. <laughs> 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 it's very high. I mean, much it's very high, right.
0: I think that I've, I, I hear increasingly uh, at all levels of education, ethnic studies, gender studies programs coming under attack, and I'm wondering how you respond to that kind of criticism, uh, the criticism that it advances a liberal agenda, and uh, can you speak to the value of those kinds of programs and how you respond to criticism about them? So
3: our new school of uh, social transformation and our uh, school of human evolution and social change, I want you to hear those names, our school of trans-border studies, those are all three functional operational schools with fantastic faculties at ASU. The issue. Uh, in uh, ethnic studies or ethnic related studies and so forth is, is not their their, their their importance or their role because that's uh, uh, without question. It's, it's the intellectual focus on advancing knowledge in these fields that's the most important. And so the way that we're able, even in a place that's as uh, libertarian-oriented as Arizona, to advance schools of social transformation and schools of social justice and schools of human evolution and transborder studies and so forth is the agenda is on advancing new ideas, advancing new scholarship, advancing new ways of thinking and new ways of understanding rather than arguing, right? rather than just arguing. So arguments are fine, but if all you do is argue, it's not as productive as create. So we'll take some argument and a lot of creativity, and so our focus is on create. Thank you so Thank much.
0: You. Thank, Thank you. you.